Don't start a process that you yourself yet are not ready to live in. And, and, and it's okay. It's okay to say to them. And they'll look at me and they'll go, oh, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean. I say, well, let's go back to something real practical. In both True Faced and in Bo's Cafe, we have a guide. Go back to the guide, answer the questions for you. Start with you. Invite a friend to go through the process of answering the questions together. Invite a friend. If you don't have a friend, invite a stranger. Just find somebody and you can just say to them, I don't know where this is going to take us. So sometimes what people do is they say, well, I, I don't have anybody. And I'll say to them, but you're the one who needs to be that somebody. You're right, you don't have anybody, but neither is anybody else. Yeah. So what if you were so convicted that you became that somebody? You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick. Today is the second of a two-part conversation with Bill Thrall, who we've been talking with. Bill is a pastor, author, thought leader, and leader of True Faced Ministries. Some of the books he's written include the influential The Ascent of a Leader, True Faced, Bose Cafe, and The Cure. Today, as we jump into the conversation, you can look forward to hearing the path that Bill Thrall walked as a younger man that brought him to some of the awareness of grace and how God works as we learn to trust who God says we are. Bill shares the journey of his life and story, including the importance of trust and love and what it means to have a clean heart. So without any further delay, let's jump into part two of our conversation with Bill Thrall on Restoring the Soul. What's the path that you've walked as a younger man? You're how old today? 72. You're 72. You look great. You, <laughs> I would not have guessed that you're yeah, 72. I'm 72. Um, you've been following Christ for decades, yeah. I presume. Yeah. You were a pastor, you're yeah. a, a consultant in business settings. What's the path that you've walked that's brought you to this awareness? Well, uh, first of all, unfortunately, it begins in brokenness. Um, my family, my mother and father were both alcoholics, pretty sick when I was a young kid. And the state of Wisconsin took us away from our parents. Mm. And I had to live with my younger brother and sister in a, in a children's home. Mm. I remember vividly, my brother and I, I was about seven or eight, he was five or six, and we thought that they'd put us in jail, that we had done something wrong. We couldn't figure out what we had done. And all the time we were there, our parents never visited us. So we didn't know if we were ever coming home. Mm. In fact, I was in the hospital while I was there, and nobody came to see me. I mean, it was just like, this is not good. Heartbreaking. <laughs> not real smart, but this is not good. So that what happened is both of my parents, in their alcoholism, and quite honestly, I hate to say this, but in their sexuality, they were, they were compulsive. And in that compulsiveness, they trained us well, and we were all compulsive children. Mm. And it just had a variety of expressions. Interesting, none of, there's nine children. The oldest sister, younger brother, had passed away, but none of the nine of us were alcoholics, but we're all compulsive. Mm. And um, so what happened is I didn't know. That, Mike, I didn't have a clue. I was just growing up. I knew I was a lonely, miserable kid. I knew that. 
you know, I, I used to, I love working with high school and college kids. I used to give a talk on, to high school kids. I love to give this talk. I still give it once in a while. Some church will still ask me, not as much, of course. I'm in my 70s for crying out loud. But I'd say to the kids, I know you cannot wait until you're able to do whatever you want. I know you can't wait. You just can't wait for your parents to be gone so you can do whatever you want. I said, uh, I never had a parent tell me no. Hmm. I could do anything I wanted from the time I was seven years old. And I want to tell you, you have no idea what it's like to live without boundaries. Hmm. You have no idea how afraid I was. You have no idea how insecure I was. You have no idea how not enough I was. Don't wish for something that'll damn you. Hmm. I, that's why I give that talk. I mean, kids just said they're going, oh, shucks. But... <laughs> But that beginning, um, uh, and, and, and I just, I don't mean this to sound proud, but I was smart. So I, I had an advantage over a couple of my siblings because I was smart. So what I did is I learned to navigate, because of my smartness, through the systems of education and social settings better than they did. Okay. But I was just as screwed up and dysfunctional as anybody in my family, except my sisters, I think, Got the worst of it all, but but mm. but um, so so I'm I'm in Bible college. I become a Christian at seventeen. Six weeks later, I'm in Bible college, and uh, I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm just <laughs> back. This is way back in the fifties, and I've got duck tails and a flat top and <laughs> a leather jacket. And these kids, some of them, had never been away from home for more than twenty minutes. I mean, it, <laughs> you talk about culture oh, shock. Oh man. For them, I was the weirdest person they knew so far. But anyway, and uh, I don't even know how he knew this. I don't know that, except one of the older students, a guy who had been in the Navy for a while. I was 17. He was 27. He came up to me one day, and he said, can I talk to you about something? Sure. What would you like to talk about? He said, well, he said, I want to talk to you about it, but I want to give you some advice. His name was Jerry. Sure, Jerry. Well, you talk me you want. You know, what do I know? He said, um, I've been watching you. I don't mean this to, I'm not haunted, but, I'm not, but I want you to know I've been watching you. He said, I'd like to recommend that you don't date anybody for a couple of years. Hmm. He said, I, I think you have some pretty unhealthy attitudes and views of women. Oh my gosh, I just started bawling. How would anybody know that? And I was dying hmm. in that reality. It resonated. Oh, but, but. I mean, to the nth degree. Because hmm. I was already at that time at Bible college. Uh, I was 15. A friend of mine's dad was an entertainer and had sex books and, video and uh, movies okay. that were made in Hollywood that I mean, we, we could watch it. At, I was already addicted to pornography at 17. Hmm. And it lasted way up into my marriage. That was the expression of my compulsiveness. I thought it was going to be in gambling because I was so stinking good at cards. <laughs> I thought, I thought, oh man, if I'm going to be compulsive anywhere, it's going to be because we gamble. I know I tell people this and they laugh with me. My mother loved to play cards, but she would not play cards with us even as kids unless we played for money. Wow. Really, I would lose my paper boy route money to my mother playing cards. <laughs> the stakes were high. Because she said, you don't play cards for fun. 
He said, you play Monopoly for fun. You play cards for real. That's great. She taught me how to gamble. She was good. <laughs> it's a little more socially acceptable yeah. addiction. <laughs> and so I went to college after Bible college, and Grace and I got married, and um, God, grace, God graced me with an incredible wife whose name is Grace. And uh, five years into our marriage, she um, one day took me for a drive uh, to tell me she was extremely unhappy in our marriage. Uh, I've been a Christian 10 years, and uh, I, I tell you, talk about God using somebody in your life. And she said to me, wouldn't you like to know why I'm unhappy? And I said, sure, of course. And she said, Bill, we can't continue living in a relationship where only you get to love me. Mm. Why won't you let me love you? Why can't you trust me? Mm. And I had never put trust and love together. I desperately wanted, I, I was doing everything I could to please this girl. I thought I was the greatest husband in the world, and she was miserable, and I couldn't even figure it out. Wow. And that night, for the first time in my life, I trusted somebody with who I was. And I shared the whole garbage list with her. And I was so stinking self-righteous, when I got to the gross stuff, I thought to myself, if, I, if she were telling me this, I'd kick her out of the car. Mm. And I was the one that was screwed up. And she just kept loving me. Once in a while, she had paused to say... Um, why do you do that? She said, that's really weird. I said, I know, thanks. Welcome to my world. Mm. But there wasn't any, first time in my life ever, I experienced what it was like to be clean. I'd never had that feeling since a child, ever. And my wife forgave me. I felt forgiven. Later, I had to learn to forgive myself, and she wasn't my counselor. But that was the breaking point in the preparation of my life for the message of grace. A few years after that, we started a ministry with a bunch of hippies. I'm this right-wing, Goldwaterite <laughs> CPA guy. And I got all these long-haired guys and mostly clothed girls you know, hanging around. I mean, Mike, it wasn't unusual for me to come home from work and have people in the front yard, backyard, and every room in the house waiting for me to come home. Wow. And, and Grace and I sat down on a Friday afternoon, neither one of us will ever forget it, ever. And we just started crying at our table. And we just said, it's time, isn't it? we got to go into the ministry with these kids. Wow. Was that the start of the church? Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't the start. It was the start of our outreach ministry. Okay. We didn't plan to start a church. We, we were all about evangelism. And God, it was the hippie, it was the Jesus movement. I, mean, I, I could take two hours to tell you about all that. It was wonderfully, horribly hard and great. <laughs> but... We weren't going to start a church because we wanted to have the fruit of our ministry go back to the churches. But the churches couldn't take the fruit of our ministry. Yeah. And uh, rock and roll, you know, I mean, all of that was just, at that time, the church had no sensitivity to. And so a bunch of them, on a, about 15 of them on a Sunday morning, we sent them to a big Bible church in town. And when we got to, they were in the parking lot, the girls were crying and the elders wouldn't let them in. Oh. So we went to our house, Grace and I and these 15 young adults that we had seen come to Christ, a couple of young leaders, and we said maybe we should start a church. Hmm. We, we, if there's a more naive group that ever started a church, I haven't met them. And what we did is we took butcher paper and put it all over the living room walls. And the first thing we did is what should church not be like? And we created a, can't be like that. What would it be like? And we started to form an idea from the scriptures purely. I had no, I had no training in church building. Wow. 
And so we started a church, and uh, it, it bore the fruit of our outreach ministry. And that's where we started to nurture people. And that's where I got in touch with, this is how it happened to me. My audience became my teacher. I was a communicator. I'd been talking a lot. I mean, even back then I was, you know, in my early 30s, but I'd been doing a lot of talks for Campus Crusade and a lot of talks for Christian business. So I was a communicator, but I'd never been a pastor. Mm -hmm. So we had a very unusual Sunday morning. You could talk to me while I was preaching. Wow. You could interrupt me and ask me what it meant and what, what we, I, we were studying it. And, and so a lot of times on a Sunday morning, I never got through a message, didn't have to. They were my message. <laughs> But they taught me a lot, Mike. And what they taught me was this question constantly came up. Bill, what difference does it make in the way we live from what you're teaching us? Why, do, why would we learn this if it doesn't have something to do with the way we live? Hmm. And I realized that the core of my theology had no application. Like none. Wow. And, and God used that audience to teach me how to make grace experiential. Because when grace is just cognitive, it's one of our theologies. When it's experiential, it's foundational. That's how it started. I mean, it was just, and, and I guess it trapped my, my gifting, and it got me going, and, and we just, we lived in those principles. That, that was the way we lived. We came up with essentials that would guide our behaviors with each other. One of our essentials still is, is this essential. We're for, not against. Hmm. It's so easy to be against things, isn't it? We're, we're for, not against. Yeah, requires now, we, grace. We realize that being for something, there others might be against us, but there is no anti, in those days, no anti-charismatic. There's no anti-this, no anti-that. We're for something. Now, that requires a very different set of learning. Hmm. It's striking how the very things you talked about in that early stage of your marriage, when things were hard, uh, how that so closely parallels you were trying so hard to please your wife and yeah. feeling miserably, and how you write about in True Faced, and yeah. so much of what you speak of is how we try so hard to please God. Exactly. And all, he's he, wants already to, pleased and all with he wants us to do is trust him. Yeah. So he can what? Love us. Yeah. It's, so, it's too simple. Yeah. But it's so profound. And, and so that, that little sketch of, of the history of our beginning, um, one, one more real quick story. Um, I don't remember the date. Um, I don't remember. Sometime late 90s. I mean, late 80s. can't remember when, but it's not important. I was asked to speak at a large missions conference in... Uh, Brookfield, Wisconsin, Brookfield Church, I don't know, five, six hundred people. It was both an embarrassing and a wonderful experience. So I got up to teach, and when I got all done, nobody moved. Nobody said anything. Nobody came up to tell me what to do next. And a man stood up in the second row, big man. Found out later he was the publisher of Multnomah Press, and he stood up and he said to me, who are you? Where did you get this message? We've never heard this before. Hmm. And I went, no kidding. <laughs> you guys, that, that, really, it was, that, it was that dramatic. I went, no kidding. Hmm. This is what we learned. This is what we teach. This is who we are. And he said, I'd never heard it before. Wow. Wow. So that was, a, that was one of those, oh my goshes. It's uh, so often the gospel 
that we claim is good news is a kind of gospel that isn't good news at all. Yeah. And there's a there's a whole other gospel that really is Amen. good news. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to a topic we were talking a little bit about on the way up the elevator before this interview, and that is I want to talk about Bo's Cafe. Yeah. And you talked about how there was an audience that was discovered that you called the de-churched. Mm-hmm. Talk about the de-churched. It's a painful audience for us to talk about, Mike, because um, Bo's Cafe was a book that many of our readers were asking for, and that was, tell us how to live this room of grace life. And so we felt the best way to do it was with a novel. Let's do it with a story. Uh, the people aren't real, but they're real. I mean, we know, we know who our characters are. We've lived with these people. But nobody would know that. And uh, what happened was uh, the book, uh, through our publisher, was distributed to an audience that was very familiar with the book The Shack. And that audience, m- millions of people, but a huge majority, more than we imagined, of that audience were de-churched people, not unchurched, de-churched people, people who had been to church and found the church so lacking, often for their lives destructive. Some of them would tell you that their greatest hurts came in their church setting. And many of them started sending us emails. They were really upset with us because they were saying, how can you teach these principles of creating safe places and be church guys? You can't be church guys. You can't do both. Church is not safe. Hmm. So your book is contradictory to us. And, you know, if there had been a hundred of them, I'm telling you, Mike, there are hundreds of thousands of de-churched people. As, as a pastor, my heart, I, I'm so concerned for them because they're without leadership. They're, they're so vulnerable to the doctrines and nonsense of angry people. See, a- angry, angry people do not have healthy theology, and and, and so so you have this huge. Back to that statement of for not against, you have a huge anti-church movement in America led by angry people, which keeps people bound bound in their nonsense. It, it's it's so troubling to us. We mm-hmm. so our best answer to all of them is, oh, okay, well, if you can't start start with somebody. Find somebody that's safe enough for you to be known. And that's why we have that table at Bo's Cafe, as you know, mm-hmm. that where it's safe enough for our lead character in the book and his wife to finally come to grips with his um, dysfunctions and hers. Right. And um, so, you know, it's, uh, I was speaking at an international leaders meeting a couple of weeks ago, and one of the men was from Germany, and he said, oh, I know who you are, Bo's Cafe. He said, we have it in German. I said, really? Oh, he says, I give them out like candy. And I said, really? That's great. I, and I thought, what must Bo's Cafe like be, be like in German with all our <laughs> idioms and, and a little place on the wharf in California? How does that translate into German? I don't have a clue, but he's excited about it. That's and, great. Yeah, so um, Bo's Cafe has proven to be a book that actually it led us, um, after Bo's Cafe, it led us into our new book, which is coming out really soon, called The Cure in which we've taken the first part of True Faced into the rooms, the two rooms, and from that expanded it into the application of life. And uh, it's called The Cure. And, and um, our goal each time is to say this. This is our conviction. Uh, the three of us as authors, and we work very close together, this is our conviction, that God is trusting us with the stewardship of a message of grace. 
and our job is to figure out as, as well as we can, as often as we can, in a variety of forms we can, how to let these principles of truth be known. That's our, that's our, that's our life mission. That's what we yeah. do. That's what we do. And, and it's just our conviction. I mean, that's, that's what drives us. And, and so everything we try to write, speak to, address is to be as consistent as we can, laying that foundation of grace so I can live out of who I am, we have a little paradigm, a little model, a little construct of two lines representing lifelines. One is my life and sin issues, and the other is my trusting God with who I am. And for a majority of Christians, they want to work on their sins so they become godly. And our model is now come to grips with who you are so you can work on your sin. Hmm. Wow. Uh, Back to the Boat's Cafe, um, yeah. and we just have a couple more minutes, I know, of your time. Right. I was working with a man, a uh, missionary overseas uh, in Eastern Europe, and had some very deep brokenness in his life, and he was finally coming to terms with that. Mm. And I gave him a copy of Bo's Cafe, and he came back in the next day, and his eyes were filled with tears. Mm. And um, he said he was angry at me. Mm -hmm. And he was deeply, deeply moved by the book, um, he he was not de-churched by virtue of the fact that he was in ministry, but he said, this seems too good to be true. Right. Right. He said, I, I don't believe this exists anywhere. Yeah. What would you say to the person, whether they're in ministry or just the, quote, normal Christian, who has been burned by the church or who uh, has tried to seek out even a person who's mm -hmm. not a paid therapist? Right. Uh, what would you say to that person? Mm -hmm. How can you create or find that kind of a safe, mm -hmm. grace-filled community? Yeah. Well, I think I would. I think I would say a couple of things to them. One thing I would say to them is, what is it you need to learn about grace so you can become the initiator? In other mm -hmm. words, I would I would give it right back to them, and I okay. would say, what do you need to learn about grace that would free you to be someone that can be trusted? Because if you can learn that, then you will be the one that becomes safe for someone else. And once you find that person for which you can be safe, you will find that they are safe. See, so, so it's, it's like, don't, don't start a process that you yourself yet are not ready to live in. Okay. And, and, and it's okay. It's okay to say to them. And they'll look at me and they'll go, oh, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean. I say, well, let's go back to something real practical. In both True Faced and in Bo's Cafe, we have a guide. Go back to the guide. Answer the questions for you. Start with you. Invite a friend to go through the process of answering the questions together. Invite a friend. If you don't have a friend, invite a stranger. Just find somebody, and you can just say to them, I don't know where this is going to take us. In fact, we have a guy who just spoke at this pastor's conference for us, and that's how he started. He just said, he went, <laughs> he's got more courage than most people, but he went to some of his colleagues, and he said, I don't know where this is going to take us, but would you be willing to dare wow. going through a process where we might learn trust? Yeah. And three guys, four guys started with him. One guy dropped out and it's changed all their lives. So sometimes what people do is they say, well, I, I don't have anybody. And I'll say to them, but you're the one who needs to be that somebody. You're right, you don't have anybody, but neither is anybody else. 
so what if you were so convicted that you became that somebody? And they'll go, oh, that's hard. Let me give you another principle of grace. Grace is free. But to one who's giving it, it's always sacrificial. Mm. Welcome to the real world of faith. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's, it all requires faith. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Bill, what is the website... Um, central place where people can go for resources it's pretty simple right now it's trueface.com okay and uh, that's who we are and that's where you can go and find out that's our website and go find out about us and what we do and what we don't do and and that'll give you access you can get on our mailing list it'll give you access to our materials it'll give you access to us you can get on blog we'll invite you to our blog the three of us do a blog every week okay and uh, we talk through these principles together we just do a 10 to 12 minute blog it'll it'll give them access to the blog uh, it'll be given access to our face book and they can interact with us John loves it he's on it a couple hours a day hmm. I avoid it like the plague it's just too technical for me I'm just thank you very much I know you love me but I I ain't gonna do that but I sneak into it once in a while I'll take a peek but I'm not okay that's not who I am and when you're referring to us, the three of us, it's John Lynch, it's Bruce McNichol, and, and you yes. co-authored together, right. Bose Cafe, True Faced, uh, and you and Bruce, The Ascent of a Leader, right. and together you make up Leadership Catalyst. That's right. And and our new book, The Cure. The Cure. That's right. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thank uh, you, Mike. It's a blessing. Good as to be always. with you. Okay. Thank you. You bet. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. Restoring the Soul.com.